Well, we spent the last several weeks taking a look at what Jesus has to say about the Holy Spirit in his farewell discourse in the Gospel of John. So let me remind you where, what this means, what this looks like. See, Jesus is about to go to the cross, and he, he tells his disciples, I'm going to go away. And of course, his disciples said, we don't want you to go away. We like being with you. We don't know how to be like you without you here to talk to us and instruct us and correct us and everything. We need you, Jesus. Jesus says, uh, paraphrased, that's too bad. I'm going away. But I have good news for you. I am going to leave for you the paraclete which is a very difficult word for us to translate from Greek to English because it is so rich, but it has this sense of a helper or a comforter or or an advocate all wrapped up into one. Someone who will be power for us, a helper. Someone who will be the presence of Jesus Christ for us and to us and for the world, even though Jesus Christ himself has left the world. If I were to ask you today, where is Jesus, we would all say at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, right? Because we remember the creed that we just spoke. We remember the Apostles' Creed as well. And we remember that Jesus Christ is not only the Son of God, but he is fully human. And human beings are not everywhere at once, are they? Have you ever been everywhere at once? Have you ever wished you could be everywhere at once? Yeah, sometimes. But Jesus is with the Father in heaven. And he is present to us today, really present to us today, by means of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will be our instructor and be our guide, do everything that we need to do so that we can fulfill our purpose as human beings, as followers of Jesus Christ in this world, which is to make disciples, baptize them, and teach them everything that Jesus has commanded us. That's our job. Those were Jesus' last words. You remember at the end of the book of Matthew, uh, the beginning of the book of Acts, when Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, he gives the same message. You are to tell people about me, teach them to be like me. That's what you're about. In this place. And we've talked about why that's important. Just just this morning, we were talking about forever since the world began, we've been trying to figure out what's wrong and how do we make it better. And what's wrong is that we have tried to throw God down as ruler of the world and rule in his place. At the core of every sin is that same idea God, not your way, but mine. And Jesus is the one who fulfills God's way perfectly on our behalf and then gives us new life so that we can also be people who fulfill God's way better and better every day until the Lord returns when we'll do it just as well as Jesus. And that'll be a good day. That's why we pray above all, come, Lord Jesus. The early church used to say, Maranatha, She doesn't mean sing for a really long time or run for a really long time. But Lord Jesus, come. We need you. But what will it mean for us if we live that Holy Spirit life here? If we lived accompanied by the presence of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Spirit of Jesus Christ? What will that mean for us today? 
That's what Jesus talks about here. First of all, we, we have to start at the end of the passage in order to understand the rest. In verses 26 to 27, Jesus says, When the Advocate comes, when the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth that goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Now, this isn't the first time in the farewell discourse, or at least it's not the only time in the farewell discourse, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will testify to certain things. He will testify, he will prove to the world that their deeds are evil, and so on. He will prove to the world the truth about me. That's what the Holy Spirit is going to do. It's, it's going to be speaking into all of the world, saying this is who Jesus is, and this is what it means for you and for the rest of the world and for all of life and for the future and for everything. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But who is going to hear the Holy Spirit? Because if, if we start, well, if the Holy Spirit's out here testifying all the time, saying all of these things, why don't more people believe? You think that way? Is the Holy Spirit just bad at his job? Was Jesus bad at his? We've observed several times that Jesus is probably the greatest preacher who ever lived, certainly the greatest preacher who ever lived, and yet not everyone that he spoke to followed him, did they? Otherwise, he wouldn't have died on the cross. Right? No one would have said, Jesus, we love you so much, we just want to kill you today. No. So there's something in our hearts that's resistant to, to hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit. And throughout Christian history, there have been a number of ways that people have explained this. The way we've understood that in our tradition in Presbyterianism is that none of us are capable on our own of turning to God. We read this passage out of the book of Isaiah last week. All we like sheep have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his or her own way. And we're not paying attention any longer. The book of Romans puts it more bluntly and more terrifyingly. It says, there is no one who seeks God. No, not one. There's no one who understands. All have turned away. All have become worthless. Jesus himself says in his ministry in the Gospel of John, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. No one. We are hopelessly lost. There's a reason why, you know, the, the favorite hymn for most Christians in America, Amazing Grace, there's a reason why it says, I once was lost, and it doesn't continue, but then I found my way home. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Jesus came looking for me. If he didn't look, I would not have been found. I was blind. Blind people don't just go, today, I think I will see. No. I was blind, but now I see. Because God has changed that about me. Remember one of the greatest miracles Jesus performed in, in the Gospel of John, and actually in all four Gospels, I believe, is the healing of the blind men. There was Bartimaeus outside of Jericho. There was also, uh, in John chapter 9, Another blind man uh, who was born blind. And everyone said, no one, if you're born blind, that's it. No one can change that. But Jesus healed him anyway. 
And, uh, and there's this amazing response where this blind man, you know, he's brought before the Pharisees because the Pharisees are convinced that Jesus is no good. And so it doesn't matter what Jesus does, they'll never believe that he is any good. And they look for any excuse to find out. So they say, are you sure you're the man born blind? He's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure. They called in his parents. Is this your son who was born blind? They go, well, yeah, that's our son. Don't, please don't ask us about his sight because we don't want to get involved. Because the Pharisees were looking for a way to discredit Jesus and they couldn't give it to him. And there's this amazing verse uh, at the end. And you know, the Pharisees, they call the blind man in twice. It, you know, did Jesus really make you see? Yeah, Jesus made me see. Well, are you sure Jesus really made you see? I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And the man answered, the man born blind. Think about this. He was not educated. He was born blind. He spent his life on the street corners begging. There were no social safety nets that took care of him. There was no housing where he could go that the government had constructed that he could live in or some charitable group had constructed that he could live in. He was a street person, born blind. And he responds to the Pharisees. Now that is remarkable. I think it loses something in the translation. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know. This is first grade stuff, my friends. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Who are the, who's the wise man? Who can see? Ironically, it's the man born blind. And the Pharisees replied to him, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? Which is an excellent answer, right? Really deals with the issues. And they threw him out. The Holy Spirit is speaking. But unless God moves, we are not willing to hear. So who receives the Spirit's testimony then? The followers of Jesus Christ. We receive the Holy Spirit's testimony. The Holy Spirit speaks into our hearts and into our souls, and none of you would be here this morning unless that had happened, where the Holy Spirit has said, you need to know Jesus. You need to know who he is. You need to follow him with your life. And maybe you're here this morning, and you're thinking, I don't really feel that. You're thinking, hey, I'm feeling spiritually dry or, or something along those lines. But that doesn't mean that God hasn't spoken, does it? You're here because you've heard the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And now what are you going to do with it? See, that's the implicit question here. It says the Holy Spirit is uh, going to testify about Jesus. And then in verse 27, and you also must testify. You also must testify. There's a a verse in the book of Romans that I wrote down in my sermon notes that I didn't bring up front that says, uh, how will they hear 
unless someone preaches to them. How will they hear? Because they're not listening to the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Because the people who don't know Jesus aren't picking up their Bibles and saying, oh, look, I want to know all about Jesus. God says, I will send you. Go and testify. Go and make disciples of all the nations and baptize them and teach them to obey everything that Jesus has said. You are the voice that they will hear even if they won't hear the Holy Spirit. Is anyone feeling at the moment now sort of like, I wish I didn't come this morning? Oh, no, I'm the voice? Oh, no. I, you know, I've shared with you many times one of my very favorite scenes in the Old Testament. Moses is standing before the burning bush and God's saying, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh and you're going to tell him, let my people go. Moses says, well, I'm a terrible public speaker. And God says, that's okay. I'm still going to send you. I'll send Aaron with you. Well, no one will listen to me because I'm not very impressive. Here, I'll teach you how to do some miracles. I'll, I'll fill you with the Holy Spirit so you can do that. Okay, God, let me just be honest with you. Please send somebody else. I don't want to. <laughs> You're in good company. You're like Moses. And look how God used Moses. It's okay. Go testify. But we need to be prepared for what will happen when we do testify. And that's what the rest of this passage is about. First of all, I, I want to I start with this. If uh, we are to go out and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people... People will respond to us in the same way they would respond to Jesus Christ. Not because of how hard we try, but because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's work was always the most important thing in the, in the first place. You could spend your whole life crafting the greatest sermon, the greatest altar call that the world has ever heard. And some people maybe even the majority of people, still will not respond. You ever uh, been to maybe a Billy Graham crusade? I'm just old enough that I, I went to a Billy Graham crusade when he was at the Kingdom in Seattle. Some of you are even saying, I don't even know what a Kingdom is. Uh, that's okay. Billy Graham was a great evangelist. One of the greatest, certainly the greatest in our modern era uh, in the United States, uh, and probably one of the greatest in the history of the world. He had a way of speaking that people responded to. And one of the things, when I was at that crusade, I was just a little kid, but I remember, I remember thousands of people coming out of the stands at the kingdom and saying, we want to know Jesus. But do you know how many people live in the Seattle area? Millions. You can be the greatest evangelist that there's ever been. And yet, that's not the primary thing that changes people's hearts and introduces them to Jesus. So here's what's going to happen instead. When you go out and you share the gospel, that's a Holy Spirit job, and the Holy Spirit will help you in doing that, so much so that people will respond to you in the same way they would have responded to Jesus. Isn't that amazing? They will respond to you the same way they would have responded to Jesus. Let me, let me read to you out of the passage. 
And in verse 21, they will treat you this way because of my name. Excuse me, verse 20. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they don't know the one who sent me. See, they're going to respond to you the way they would have responded to Jesus, for good and for ill. Some people will obey, and other people will continue in their disobedience. Because they're responding to Jesus, not to you. Can that lift some of the the burden of responsibility off of our shoulders for a moment here? Your job isn't to go out and be Billy Graham. Your job isn't to go out and preach as well as Jesus did. Your job is just to preach, just to testify, just to say, I met Jesus. This is who he is. This is what he did. Would you like to know him too? And folks will respond to that the same way they would respond to the Lord. Wow, that's crazy. You can just go and and say what's on your heart, and God will use that. Now, a lot of people are not going to respond positively to the message of Jesus Christ. What are we supposed to make of that? We've been talking about, first of all, it's, that response is not on our shoulders. It's not about our wisdom to argue people into the kingdom. It's, it's about what God wants to do. And we don't fully understand what that is or, or how it's going to work, other than that he desires to give mercy to anyone who would receive it. But if you get that negative response, here's the next thing that you need to know. If the world hates you, keep in mind, Jesus says, that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of it. What's going to happen when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ? with people is that they're going to start to realize this person is not normal. This person doesn't sound like the other people that I spend my time with. They don't sound like, you know, they don't even look like the people that you know, I, I partner with to try and change and transform the world. They're different. It's almost like they're from another world. And if they start to think that, they're going to be right. It's because Jesus Christ has called us all out of this world and into the new world that he's making. But notice that he's not calling us out of the world like, man, this place stinks. Let's go somewhere else. He's saying, I am calling you out of the broken order of this world and into a new world order, which in turn is invading this one. That's why Jesus rises from the dead. To show that this old world order no longer has the final word. But God has a new word for the world. A word where death no longer reigns absolutely. Because before, during, and after the lifetime of Jesus Christ, does anyone else beat the snot out of death the way that Jesus did? No. He was absolutely and utterly unique, and he is the vanguard of the invasion of heaven coming to earth to transform and remake and change it. He's not throwing anything away. He's not abandoning anything, but he will remake and redeem it all. 
Now, we have a choice in responding to that, which, of course, it gets tricky because we've just been talking about how no one seeks God in the first place. But what does it mean then? Because it does feel like, well, if we talk about heaven and hell, it sure seems like God is abandoning some people. But what if in hell God is just giving us what we always asked for in the first place? What if that's primarily what hell is all about? See, we, like Dante, actually probably informed by Dante, who wrote the Divine Comedy, among which is the Inferno, which you'll recognize, Dante's Inferno. Dante described hell primarily as a place. But what if hell is primarily an orientation? An orientation of our hearts towards God or away from God. Saying, I will be my own God or I will bow before the only God. See, I think this is a much better way of understanding what we mean by hell. That it's primarily about, will God say to us, my will be done or thy will be done? You heard that phrase before? Is God going to say to the folks who in the end say, we don't want anything to do with you? Fine. You don't have to have anything to do with you or to, to do with me. You can go your own way. But you need to understand that every good and perfect gift comes from me. What are you going to do if I'm no longer there to give them to you? That's hell. That's hell. And God will give it to us if we ask long enough and hard enough. So first, we need to understand the world's hatred. Understand, when people say no to Jesus, when people hate Jesus, I was reading, uh, what was I reading this morning? I was reading an, an online chat room uh, of something I'm interested in, somebody who is just casually trashing Christianity. Chat room had nothing to do with Christianity, but it comes up anyway. And you know what? I read that and I got mad. It's like, don't talk about me and the people like me and my Lord like that. And I wanted to, to think of a hundred ways to, to answer that back and say, you know, you're wrong for X, Y, and Z reasons. You know, and I was realizing that I was being motivated not out of love for Jesus Christ and concerned to testify as to who he was, but because I was angry that someone didn't like me and I wanted to show them that they were wrong. You know how that works? It's not limited to our faith, by the way. It happens everywhere. It happens in the political arena. As a matter of fact, the political arena may more or less be dominated by acting that way. The important thing is not that we're right, but that you're wrong. Those are the easiest campaign promises to keep. But it infects us as well. And we need to get over that. We need to say, you know what? The world's hatred comes from the fact that I belong to Jesus. And they can't stand Jesus. They, they're afraid of Jesus, whether they know it or not. They're afraid of Jesus. And, and here's why. Earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus says to his disciples, the world hates me. What is this, John 7, 8, maybe? John 7, 7? I'd like to give you the reference. John 7, 7. The world cannot hate you, because he's speaking to his disciples, his people still in the world, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. How many of you enjoy people coming up to you and saying, let me describe all of your character flaws for you. Anyone appreciate somebody who does that? Do you look for people like that in your life? Like, oh, I need that person. We need to get together once a week so I can hear all those things. 
But when we meet Jesus, Jesus' very life convicts us, doesn't it? Because we want to go and yell at the people we don't like, and Jesus is out there offering them grace and mercy. Remember, there's a a scene where Jesus comes to Samaria, and some of the Samaritans reject him. And Jesus, uh, the disciples say to Jesus, Lord, should we call fire out of heaven to burn up these horrible people? Jesus is like, no, that's not what we're about. You shall love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus' very existence is a testimony that ours is broken and is flawed. And unless we're willing to turn and be healed, that will always be threatening and it will always be frightening and it will always make us angry and it will always result in hatred. If people are going to respond to you and I the way they would respond to Jesus Christ when we live like him and when we share the gospel about him, then yes, some of them will hate us as well. But we don't have to be deterred by that. We don't have to respond in kind. We can say, well, that makes sense. That's proof that we're, we're really like Jesus, that the Holy Spirit's really at work. Now, let, let's be clear. Sometimes it can also be proof that we're jerks. Sometimes people won't like us because we didn't do a nice thing. So this isn't carte blanche to do whatever you want and say, oh, they just don't like me because I'm not like Jesus or because I am like Jesus. Like, I went onto their property and I cut down all of their trees and now they hate me, but that's just because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not how it works. When we are like Jesus, if that's the reason for the hatred, we say, well, now we're in good company. As a matter of fact, the disciples in the book of Acts, at one point, they're out preaching the gospel, and uh, the religious leaders don't know what to do with them, so they get them all together, and they eventually decide, well, we're just going to flog them and let them go, and we'll tell them, don't, don't preach in Jesus' name anymore. And all the disciples, you know, so they get the disciples together, they flog them, they beat them, and they get them out, and you know, the, they must be stumbling, because they're really flogged. You know, their love of Jesus doesn't mean that the whip doesn't hurt. But they must be stumbling out of that that area. And yet, Acts says that they were rejoicing, that they'd been counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. Not because they were masochists who loved to suffer, but because they realized that we are like our Lord. People wouldn't be so angry if we weren't like our Lord. First of all, we need to understand that the world will respond to us in the way that it responds to Jesus Christ, and that's by the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we need to recall that this means that some people will indeed hate us. But when they do, it's only because we're like our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, I think at this point we could have done earlier as well, but finally... Jesus says this, which is, it sounds sort of strange, so see if you can stick with me. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my Father, but this is to fulfill what was written in their law, they hated me without reason. Did you catch what Jesus said? If I didn't come and do the miracles and teach them all about God, then they wouldn't be guilty of their sin. And maybe what we think in the first place is, well, then maybe we shouldn't teach people about Jesus because that just makes them guilty if they don't respond to him in the right way. But I don't think that's actually what's happening here in this passage. I think what Jesus is talking about is more their awareness of their sin. 
See, if I hadn't have come, they could have just gone unhappy and untroubled, thinking that they're okay and everything's fine. And you know what? That's what people think who are doing well in the world, who are successful, who are comfortable. When we are successful and comfortable, we often need someone to come and say, hey, the world, not everyone experiences the world the way that you do. Even if you get good things out of the world, not everyone does. Not only this, maybe some of the good things that you take for granted sometimes come to you off the backs of the people underneath. There is an interesting uh, contradiction in politics uh, several presidential cycles ago where there's big discussions over immigration. And someone suggested, well, we need lots of uh, illegal immigration because they do the jobs that no one else is willing to do. And if, if you stop and think about that for a moment, it, it doesn't mean what you think it means, does it? It means if only we had a, a nice permanent underclass of people who would create the sort of society that we would enjoy living in. Now, I, to be fair, I don't, that's not what this person meant to say. I think they were trying to be fair and kind and just. But nonetheless, it was a horrible thing to say. Those kinds of things, I think we have to acknowledge that all of the economic systems that exist in the world do not treat everyone perfectly fairly. Some people start with a head start. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But opportunity isn't distributed equally in our own country or across the world. And I think if Jesus were here, he would tell us that. Say, I didn't give you your stuff so that you could be safe and secure. It's not the point. I gave you your stuff so you could worship me with it. So that you could stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. So that you would love the loveless. So that you would care for the needy. So I think Jesus... He's saying, that's what my presence does among people. Makes them uncomfortable. Because it reminds them that they're not everything that they thought that they were. You're not as good as they thought that they were. And sometimes they're downright bad. And the last thing I, I want you to note on this point. Were the disciples of Jesus Christ comfortable around him? What do you think? Is that a comfortable experience? Remember, uh, remember Peter? He kept saying stuff, and Jesus kept shooting him down constantly. Oh, you of little faith. He could, remember, that Jesus calmed the storm. Remember this story? Jesus, the disciples are out in the boat, and they're, they're sailing, and then this big storm kicks up, and Jesus is sleeping in, in the front of the boat, and, and the disciples wake him up and say, don't you care that we're, we're about to die? And Jesus, he, he, he in Greek, says, you little faithers. Okay, seriously, Jesus, the boat is swamping. We're about to die, and you're saying we don't have enough faith. Do you think the disciples were comfortable around Jesus? I don't. I think that almost every day they found a new reason to be uncomfortable around Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, one of my very favorite passages out of the Gospel of John, 
I think it's John chapter 8. John, Jesus has just been with this big crowd of people, this big crowd of disciples. And he tells them, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be part of me. And long story short, the, all these, these disciples say, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And they abandon Jesus. And Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, are you going to leave me too? Does Jesus sound discouraged to you at all in that moment? I think he does. That's encouraging too, isn't it? I love when other people are discouraged like me. Misery loves company, but also it lets me know that I'm not unusual. God can work with me too. But really what's interesting is the response of the disciples. Here, Peter, bless his heart, gets it right. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So he says, yeah, we're going to stay. But does he sound happy about it to you? Lord, where shall we go? We've looked, believe me. We'd like to be anywhere but here. But you're the only one with the words of eternal life. Folks, let's be that. Let's be people who make the world around us uncomfortable. Because we demonstrate through our obedience to Jesus Christ, through real transformation, real changed lives, real cooperation with the Holy Spirit. Let's demonstrate that there is real power in Jesus Christ. So much that it is frankly disturbing. But that's where life is. And there's nowhere else we can go. And at the end of the day, there's nowhere better than we can go. Because the God who makes us uncomfortable is also the God who gladly dies in our place. Because that's how much he loves us.